And we are live for the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris. And uh, as you can tell, my voice is still a little bit under the weather, but uh, it's at least understandable. It wasn't a few days ago, and uh, it was just not even an option to podcast. So that's why there's a big gap between, I think, last Thursday when I released uh, the last uh, podcast and today. Uh, this morning, though, I did record a long podcast with Stephen Wolf on the case for Christian nationalism, and that should be, uh, I think I scheduled the first one to drop tomorrow evening, and then Monday and Tuesday will be the second and third installments, so you can look forward to that. I've actually I finished his book last night. Here it is, The Case for Christian Nationalism, and uh, I had an advanced copy, but that didn't seem to help me get it read in time uh, for it to be out. It's actually been out, I think, now for four days, so... Uh, you can pick up a copy on Amazon, and I believe a Kindle copy is available, and they're working on an Audible, as I understand it, version right now, uh, which I would suggest for those who commute, because this is a long book. It's almost 500 pages. Uh, it's it's the kind of book I was used to reading in college, actually, and it's on that level, too. Uh, and frankly, it's actually high, a much higher level than the books that I had to read in seminary, much higher. Uh, it's a very um, academic book, and um, it's a good book, though. It's really causes you to think, really challenges, I think, some assumptions that many Christians have today that they don't really question because it's just what you grew up in. And we have a lot of, uh, especially post-World War II ideas that are common to our way of life, our civilization, just the assumptions that we breathe in around us that we just don't really question. We don't realize that before modernity, especially there was a lot of things that were much different. People thought way differently about uh, all kinds of things. And uh, one of them is uh, the definition of a nation and how Christianity uh, should impact a nation or religion even in general should uh, impact a nation. Uh, it, is that even possible to have a secular state? Is that even a thing? I mean, that, that would have been the question probably our ancestors, our Christian forebearers uh, 200 years ago would have been asking, you know, what are you talking about? A country that doesn't have a Christian or a religious assumption uh, on the, the where how its laws are, are constructed and its social mores and all of that. How is that even possible? So we've we've uh, drifted in some ways a long way, and there's a number of reasons for it. But I really appreciate this book for the simple reason that it really causes one to think. It brings up a lot of uh, Christian tradition. Um, I mean, he's constantly quoting the uh, really, it's not really the early church as much. He does go into the patristic period, but he, he quotes a lot of uh, reformers and, and Puritans especially, but he does go uh, somewhat into, like he quotes Augustine quite a bit. Uh, he quotes Thomas Aquinas, so he quotes uh, Protestants and Catholics, but it's it's pretty broad in that sense, but it's it gives you a good handle on um, some of the very questions that we need to be answering today. And I think it gets the ball rolling in the right direction. So uh, good on Stephen Wolf for writing this. Shame on Christian academia for either not having the wherewithal to write something that's helpful like this or just being unwilling to do it. And I think it's a combination of probably both of those things. Uh, the books that have come out of Christian academia are, have just been pitiful. In fact, I'm reading the one by Paul Miller right now. It's pitiful. It's just, it's not helpful. It's, it's, it's not even written at the same level. It's kind of embarrassing that you have a guy like Stephen Wolf. He cannot challenge this guy's uh, academic credentials, at least the people that are trying to challenge his academic 
credentials or make, make him look like he's fringe or something. These are people that have written works that are so subpar. So anyway, my two cents about the book, uh, as I'm uh, still, um, it, it's still percolating in me. In fact, I have on my desktop right now, uh, eight pages, almost eight pages, single spaced, uh, just quotes and questions that I had for Steven. I didn't get to ask him even probably three quarters of those questions, but um, but I'm going to save this for future reference, and I'm sure uh, it'll be handy with uh, the, this discussion about Christianity and its influence in public life and in politics in particular. This isn't going away. The, the cold Christian nationalism debate, if that's what you want to call it, it's not going away anytime soon. So uh, welcome all of those who are streaming. Uh, we have uh, a number of you already commenting today. And yeah, I just got my book Tuesday. Can't wait to read. It's by the way, I just be warned. It is long and it is you, you need to sometimes you'll have to um, like for me, I was reading pages and I was like I could get past sometimes five or six pages and just skim it. You know, I, I get it. I understand it. And then there'd be like a paragraph and I'm like, I got to read this two or three times. <laughs> I really want to wrap my head around this. So it takes you a lot longer than for me, at least a typical book that I'd be reading on Christianity. So, but it's well worth it. John, do you like David Barton's book on American history? That is way outside of what I'm talking about today, but uh, I'm not sure which book you're you're referring to. Conservative Christian News Junkie wrote that. I'm not sure. Uh, I've read some of his books. Um, I've some of them. I, I yeah. I've talked about David Barton before on the podcast, and. My general critique, if there I have a critique of Barton, I do. So I should just say I have one. I'm not going to be modest or coy about it. Yes, I have a critique of Barton. Is that uh, he's sometimes sloppy in his use. He can do sometimes what I see leftist histor historians do, which is they string together. It's called cherry picking, but they'll take quotes and they'll form a narrative that's already kind of pre-written in their mind. And I, I've seen David Barton do this on some things before. That said... I tend to be pretty defensive of someone like Barton because the backlash, it's not just him, but anyone who says that we have a Christian heritage or their Christian ideas contributed to the founding of America or our civil laws or um, just that there's a Christian influence somewhere, the backlash that he gets is so often unfair. It's it, it's over the top. It, it's Because uh, I think in general, when Barton... What he's known for is that he, he advocates that there's a Christian kind of underpinning that uh, the United States has. Now, unfortunately, I think what he does is he kind of he buys into the propositional nation stuff. He um, he overplays his hand quite a bit, I think, with uh, sometimes cherry picking quotes or, or he's unfortunately used quotes in the past that just aren't. Um, that haven't really been verified. I think some of that he's corrected on the Wall Builders website. But if you read any of his books, if you're uh, an academic in any sense, and you, you look just through the footnotes, you'll notice that he's not an academic writing this stuff, which is okay. I'm, I'm all for people that aren't academic writing history. But um, I think it he it, sometimes his treatment of sources is a little suspect. You just have to watch it. So for instance, I have on my shelf... Where is it? I don't know where it is on my shelf, but I have on my shelf, his, his, he's a short book on masonry, Freemasonry and the American founding. And actually he makes a lot of really good points, I think. But 
what I've noticed in his um, citations is he will treat things like a dictionary or encyclopedia, let's say, on an equal footing as a primary source, which is just like, no, <laughs> you can't do that. And that's why um, if I read anything, if there's anything David Barton that I use, well, I don't really use David Barton stuff, but in that one case I did. I, I mean, I at least looked through it because I was writing a paper on Freemasonry and I just wanted to see what he had. And I just had to be super careful. I had to go back to the primary sources and just, um, I had to treat kind of the, the grid that he was giving it with some um, some caution. So that's just the only encouragement I give is just just his methodology. Sometimes he, he wants to prove a point and he's he's not exactly unbiased. And, and none of us are completely unbiased, but it gets into his method a bit. And, um, and that's what you don't want in a historiography. You want to try to be as objective as you possibly can, knowing that you have limitations, but you're, you're trying to get all the facts you can and create a paradigm that makes sense of them. So leaving out facts that are inconvenient, you don't want to do that. Uh, you, you don't want to um, also create facts or you, you don't want to overplay uh, facts that just aren't even, weren't that important for the time period. You want to be as, as balanced as you possibly can and uh, read with authorial intent in mind, with the context, the historical context in mind. And sometimes David Barton, I think, uh, le leaves a little bit to be de desired on that. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I haven't read The American Story. If that's the one you're asking about, I have not read it. So you know, maybe it's good. I don't know. I, I just uh, don't understand, unfortunately, or I don't have any knowledge of it. Um, saw a great interview with Glenn Beck and Bodie Bauckham. I have not seen that. They both agreed that Christian nationalism is fringe. Really? Because I was going to play a clip today from Vody Bachman on Ali Stuckey's show. And uh, I thought that, uh, well, maybe maybe it's out of context. Ooh, maybe, I hope I'm not doing what I'm uh, saying others do here. I thought he was being positive about it. But maybe um, maybe I'm off. Maybe I won't play it now. Maybe I'm going to have to go watch the whole episode. <laughs> Someone sent it to me. Anyway. Uh, all right, so people are logging on though. We got forty-seven uh, viewers right now, and this is again a, a, an unannounced live stream. But I just really wanted to get out there and uh, put it, give you something because I just haven't been able to with my voice. And I'm going to give you. Uh, let's see what we're going to do on the podcast. I'm going to give you a rundown of the retreat last weekend, which was was really good. And by the way, I just want to say before I forget, I am so grateful to all of you who support me on Patreon. And in other ways, um, those who pray, those who who give, uh, it's it goes to a good use. And uh, this weekend, this last weekend was it, it opened my eyes in in some ways. I did not realize to what extent uh, this podcast influences people. Uh, and, and I should know that because I've traveled around. It always it's fresh every time I go somewhere and I talk to people, and I realize, wow, this has really meant a lot to some people. And what I think I realized the last weekend was not only does this podcast mean something to you and, and the books and, and all of it, but we can actually do more than just the podcast. And I want to do more events. In fact, next year, I'm already thinking about channeling energies uh, less into travel. I did a lot of travel this year and I might do some, but I, I less into travel and more into perhaps some conferences and events um, that that. Uh, I'm going to help put together and uh, I already have people volunteering to help out with that and I'm going to definitely use your help but uh, we're going to we're going to do some events we're going to we're going to bring some speakers not just myself but I think some speakers that are have been perhaps unfairly ignored 
or blacklisted or just uh, let's just say they, they don't fit the paradigm and they have a lot of good things to say. Stephen Wolf is actually one of them. Uh, he doesn't really get a lot of traction at conferences or within the ranks of elite evangelicalism or conservatism. And um, he has a lot of good things to say. So there are a bunch of people like that I'm thinking of. And uh, I'm just excited about it. So I'll give you uh, a little bit about that and just tell you a little bit how my week was on a personal note. And we will talk about Christian nationalism. Uh, the We're going to talk about uh, what's going on online, the big uh, blowback or, or pushback against Stephen's book. And it's coming, guys, from all quarters. It's, it's except for paleoconservative, if you want to call them that, uh, Christians like myself. I would consider myself that. I'm, I'm a conservative, but I'm not a neocon. I'm not, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a good old-fashioned conservative, and I'm a Christian. I believe uh, God's word is true. It's the final authority. And if you're not in that, if you don't have those, both those things, really, if you're not, uh, if, if you're not a paleoconservative and you're not a biblical, you know, Bible-believing Christian, and it seems like if you're just, you know, you're a Bible-believing Christian, at least that's what you say, but you're you're not a paleoconservative, you're going to be attacking Stephen Wolf's book. If you're uh, if you're in mainstream conservatism today, you're probably going to be attacking Stephen Wolf's book. If you're a progressive, you're definitely going to be attacking Stephen Wolf's book. If you're a social justice advocate, you're attacking. It's like it's like everyone in the elite circles. But yet the book he just told me yesterday it entered Amazon's what top 100 of all books on Amazon, the top 100. Incredible success this book is having, uh, and I'm excited for that. But uh, we're going to examine that, right? And I don't have all the answers, but I want to at least discuss it. It's a conversation that matters, I think. Why is Stephen's book getting so much blowback? What What's the fear of what Stephen's saying? So uh, we'll talk about that a little bit too. And um, just appreciate all of you, though, uh, who have been supported. Uh, a few more comments before I get started on, I get the ball rolling. Uh, a few more comments on the channel here in chat. Uh, totally off subject, but conversations that matter. I'm reading another book that you recommended, John Jasper, The Unmatched Black Philosopher and Preacher. Yes, good book. I really enjoy that. Uh, I like I like those little history books. And that it's not just because they challenge so much of the assumption we have, assumptions we have today, emanating especially from social justice advocates. And that book will definitely challenge them. Not because it's meant to, just because they don't have a paradigm that makes sense of John Jasper. But... Uh, I just think it's it's a blessing to be introduced to characters that you're not used to seeing in your daily life today. It's one of the reasons I think C.S. Lewis said it's important to read old books, and it is. So uh, let's get into it, though. Uh, <laughs> let's get into it today. Um, thankful for the uh, participation. Uh, let's see, where do we start? Let me start here. I'm going to show you just some pictures from Gab, and I'll just give you a little rundown of the retreat. Uh, here's my Gab profile, and here's some pictures from uh, the weekend. We had, I think, a few. There was like two or three people who didn't come who had signed up, but uh, even with that, we had over 80 people there. And you can see here's the room full of men in the Adirondacks in New York. Beautiful weather, by the way. It was just wonderful the weather we had. I could not have asked for better weather. And um, I happened to snap this picture as 80 Robles was sneaking out the back under much conviction from Dr. Fuller's message. Not just kidding. 
but uh, there there he is, and there's Dr. Fuller, and there's a number of people from my church, and and probably two thirds at least, maybe three quarters of the people there were uh, from other churches, and um, it was just uh, such a blessing. I was personally convicted by Dr. Fuller's message, especially his first one about recognizing other people's sins. Which, by the way, this podcast it's a danger. I got to realize that. Pray for me because. If I am um, critical for a living, in a sense, <laughs> I mean, if, if if part of my job now is writing these books, is uh, examining what others have said and finding flaws, being discerning in that sense, then it's so easy to think that you have it together. And it's easy to see other people's faults and not see the ones in yourself. And so I think Dr. Fuller just, um, it was just a helpful thing for me to hear and uh, I, some people have told me after the conference things like life-changing. I mean, someone told me it was life-changing. Uh, others have told, I don't think I've heard one negative comment. Everyone who came to me said, so are we doing it next year? And I mean, one guy came to me and said, look, I'm scoping this out because if you guys do it next year, I'll bring my church. So this could be a lot bigger. Um, and not that that's the goal. In fact, I don't want it to be too big. I'd rather do multiple events that aren't big than have one big event. That's just how I am. I think I think the people that came got more out of it by having just a few days with Dr. Fuller and myself. Unfortunately, I lost my voice and it, I was sick. I, I had a hard time, uh, especially the second half of the retreat getting through it. I, I tried to muscle through, but it was just hard. And I felt awful that I couldn't be at my very best for everyone who came. But I, I definitely um, pushed myself and I think I was able to interact with everyone who wanted to interact, but um, it was just too short. I'll be honest. I think next year what we're going to do is do a four-day thing and what I'll, I'll, I'll probably do two tracks. So we'll have like a pre-conference kind of thing maybe on one day and then we'll have three days for people who can just do the weekend. Some people with their jobs, they can't take off that much time, but we had a good time hiking. In fact, here's a, a clip from a picture from the hike I did, which was challenging. I felt bad again on that because I told everyone it was a moderate hike. And then um, I was not the first one in the uh, the caravan going to the hike parking lot. So I thought, I, I it was my mistake, but um, people saw, whoever was the first one, I guess, saw that, hey, look, there's a, uh, there's a hiking spot here. And it wasn't the one that I had read about online. <laughs> so... I went on a hike I, I didn't know about, and it was a great hike. It just was a little more challenging. So uh, one guy emailed me and said, my knees are still hurting from from that one. But uh, I think I think everyone would say it was worth it. It was, it was a great hike. And uh, we uh, ended up going, uh, actually, we went swimming a little bit, some of us. I took my, my shirt off and jumped in the uh, lake, and uh, we got a good view there. You can see, though, uh, part of the group that came with us on that. And uh, just a blessing getting to know people, even on the hike. And uh, let's see, some other people on Gab were, were tagging me in different pictures. Um, so, uh, yeah. And, and I did make, uh, also on YouTube, you can go check it out. It's on Gab, too, and Facebook, I think. You can check out the little uh, sort of, I guess, promo. <laughs> uh, recap. It's a recap video of the Adirondack Men's Retreat 2022. And it gives you an idea of what it was like. And it was just a blessing all the way around. I led the music, even without a voice, someone else sang for me, but uh, the men singing, I mean, they really sang. And I was blown away by that. I wasn't used to hearing uh, that powerful of a voice uh, in unison like that. It was really uh, amazing. And um, 
definitely have to do it again. Definitely have to do it. And I think more events like this, I'm motivated towards that end uh, right now. So anyhow, uh, that's a little update on the weekend. Food was good. I don't know. I could just go on and on. Uh, Edie Robles uh, didn't catch any fish, unfortunately, but you don't catch fish in October much in the Adirondacks. But he had a great time on his kayak. I mean, that's one of the cool things. You can bring your kayak. You can spend the afternoon in between sessions. You, you can go for a run. You can Whatever you want to do. Um, and uh, we had a good time. And then my brother and I actually on the way back, I don't know if I posted these pictures. Let's see. I don't think I did. I think I posted them on Facebook. I must have forgotten to post, uh, forgotten to post them on Gab. But we, we saw some cool stuff on the way back. But anyway, so that was the uh, retreat. And then my brother actually moved to Tennessee uh, today. He's moving to Tennessee. And so I've been helping him pack the last uh, couple of days too. And so I just between being sick and the retreat and then him going to Tennessee, uh, yeah, I just haven't had a chance to really do much um, in the way of podcasting or um or even a lot of writing, but that's changing today. So uh, we, we have a, a lot of content that we're gonna get to in the next week. And um, obviously that's starting today with some stuff on uh, Christian nationalism. How do you like this picture though? This is my wife and I took a walk the other day since I'm on Gab and I'm just showing you stuff. Here is a late autumn picture from down the road from my house actually. And um, it's just so beautiful, it, this area of the country. Even though it's controlled by liberals who even after the election, even if the Republican wins, it'll still be controlled by liberals. But uh, even if Zeldin wins the the gubernatorial race, it's just so beautiful, though. And it's one of those things. It's such a trade off. And, and even reading this book on Christian nationalism, I'm thinking about your place and just the attachments you form when you're in an area. And um, I certainly have some roots, uh, really all over the country, but especially, well, in some ways, especially to the land, at least. I have a special attachment to this area of the Hudson Valley because I just spend a lot of time uh, being involved in um, outdoor stuff and uh, I just love it. It's so beautiful. So anyway, glad I can share a little bit with you through the camera lens. Well, let's talk about Christian nationalism now, shall we? We have 79 people uh, streaming. <laughs> Someone just wrote, you're tempting me to move to New York. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Unless you have a really good reason uh, I would not do it. So, um, you know, it's weird on the chat too. I'm noticing uh, it's what if, what gets flagged. People sometimes write me. They're like, "John, did you delete my comment?" No, it's YouTube. YouTube keeps deleting stuff and uh, putting warnings by my videos and stuff too. But we will persevere. So let's start here. I think I, I think there's a method to my madness. I think I wanted to start with this article. Yes, I believe this was the first one. So. I'm going to minimize myself here. We're just going to read this together and talk about it. This is by Jonathan Lehman at Nine Marks. And it's uh, called Christian Nationalism Misrepresents Jesus. So we should reject it. That's right. Christian Nationalism Misrepresents Jesus. So we should reject it. I half expect him in two weeks to put out another article <laughs> talking about how he didn't understand what he really meant by this. Uh, maybe not. But I remember the... Uh, before you follow John MacArthur, wait, right? I don't remember how he phrased it, but he had a whole article. And then, anyway, uh, <laughs> the the church there, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, decided to also, much later than Grace Community Church, but uh, they, they decided to take legal action because they were being shut down um, through uh, the 
implementation of COVID policies, etc. But here's this article. This is the one we're focusing on. Christian nationalism misrepresents Jesus, so we should reject it. Okay, how does it misrepresent Jesus? Best I can tell, folks these days are use the phrase Christian nationalism and Christian nation in one of two ways. Some mean that Christianity should influence the nation and its laws. Others mean that the nation and its government should actually identify as Christian. The problem is many people, Christian and non-Christians, advocates and critics, don't recognize the difference, which is one reason I believe we should drop the label altogether. Now, let's stop there. This is just the first paragraph. Let's change it from Christian nationalism to something else. Christian familialism, okay? A Christian family. What, what does it mean to have a Christian family? Well, if I were to say to you, well, there's two ways you can mean, you, you can think of having a Christian family. One is Christianity should influence the rules that your family has set up and the habits that your family has. And then the other one is that your family should actually identify as Christian. What would you say to me? You would probably say, I'm not seeing a huge difference there. And you would, I think rightly so, you, you would say that. Because um, if you said that's a Christian family, you don't necessarily mean that every child is uh, has made a profession of faith. You don't mean that uh, every child's baptized, uh, unless you're Presbyterian, maybe. Um, you mean that the family, the, the parents who are run the family, have set a tone for that family, and that tone is a Christian tone. So they operate it through uh, when they seek to apply rules for the family. When they punish children, it's on the basis of the morality found in the scriptures. It's a family that observes the holidays that are associated with Christianity. Uh, it's a family that honors Christ in their uh, on their calendar and their daily habits. Maybe they have a devotional time. It could look different for different families, but... Uh, that's what that means. And it's not a mystery to any of us. We we don't confuse that with every 100% of the people are Christians in the family. We, we know that means that's a Christian family when they're showing up at church. So yeah, that's a Christian family. They come to our church. Uh, and we would say that, that, that so, so these things are run together is what I'm saying. Uh, if a country or a nation is influenced by Christianity and its laws, then we would, I think that in a sense, we can say it's a Christian country. And we don't mean that everyone in that country is a Christian, right? Would we say that, um, I don't know, Saudi Arabia is a Muslim country? No one would say, well, wait, 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 John, hold on. There's two ways to think of, no, you, you know what I mean, right? So <clears throat> this is the, the distinction that Jonathan Lehman wants to make at the beginning of the article. And I'm just submitting to you, I just don't know that that's even a, a worthwhile discussion to have. It just, but well, let's see. Let's see what he says. Advocates of Christian nationalism in terms of influence have in mind Christians opening their Bibles, doing their best to understand what God requires of a nation, and then stepping into the public square and seeking to pass laws, establish practices, and encourage traditions in keeping with a biblical view of justice and righteousness. Let me label this first group the influencers. They want a Christianity-influenced nation, though I think the influencers need to drop the Christian nationalism or Christian nation label post-haste. As I'll argue in a moment, you can count me in with this group. To deny the role of Christian influence in the public square is to deny the lordship of Christ. To which I'd say, good for you, Jonathan. And I would say that the uh, social justice advocates on the left, the hardcore, you know, the base of the Democrat Party, those really in influence in the current administration 
wouldn't make a big difference in their minds. They wouldn't think of you as different from from even Andrew Torba. I hate to say it, but they're not going to make these distinctions, really. You want Christianity to influence the nation, then you're a threat in their minds. Advocates of Christian nationalism in terms of identity mean all of this, but more, Jonathan Lehman says. He says, let's call these folks the identifiers. So you have the influencers, and now here's the identifiers. They want to formally establish Christianity as the nation's official religion, which is what I mean by saying they want to give the nation an explicit Christian identity. This is like calling Saudi Arabia a Muslim nation, Israel a Jewish nation, or even, if I might add for good measure, China, a communist nation. Okay, and I just used the example of Saudi Arabia. Okay, we could use the example of Turkey, though, for what I was saying earlier. Would you say Turkey's a Muslim nation? I guess, sure. Um, it, it's, it, it's, I would say, less... Uh, they're less aggressive, though, in their their Muslim, their Islam, uh, in it, applying it as than a Saudi Arabia would be. But they're still a Muslim country. The majority of the people there are Muslim. Their social mores are Muslim for the most part. It's you, you hear the um, you know here we hear church bells uh, there. They they're going to hear the call to prayer. Now and really the difference is only one of degrees, really. Now, the distinction between an established and non-established religion is an on-off switch. It's a dimmer switch, which is why debates exist over whether Turkey is a Muslim. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I guess I'm, I'm out in front of all of the things that he's bringing up as examples here. Whether Turkey is a Muslim nation or India is Hindu or America um, is or was Christian. These later three have secular constitutions, but all three offer a few practices or laws that privilege one faith over others, if nothing more than the state recognition of a religious calendar and holidays. Still, most of us recognize that even when you factor in the complexities of the dimmer switch, there's a basic difference between establishment and non-establishment. Sure, it's a difference of degrees, though. I mean, in the United States, at the founding, you had state religions in the different states. Nine of the 13 had an official state religion. In fact, in many of them, if not all, you couldn't run for office if you weren't a member of or professed, let's say, uh, faith in Christ to, to some extent. Now, there were different, you know, depending on where you were, if you were in Virginia, it was Anglican, if you were uh, in Massachusetts, Congregational, if you were in, um, in Pennsylvania, depending on what era we're talking about, it might have been Quaker, could have been uh, Catholic in Maryland, depending on where you were. But really, this came down to the state and community level. And the uh, national, if you want to say national, but the common government was uh, had very limited responsibilities. And so for the responsibilities it did have, I would say, yes, it, it was Christian. There was an oath of office there. They took the oath on the Bible. Um, it was it, it, The understanding was that there was a system of rewards and punishments. Otherwise, the oath doesn't make sense. So you, there, you have to have God. You have to have a conception of some kind of heaven and hell for this to, to make sense. And uh, we see the actions, uh, obviously, opening in prayer, um, the sessions of Congress, uh, you know, the Northwest Ordinance, we see religious language, and this is very early on in the country's history. Um, so, I mean, the seculars want to bring up things like the Treaty of Tripoli and stuff, but they usually just don't understand or they take out of context what they're uh, what they're talking about. The, the Constitution is not a godless document. Uh, it's uh, based upon uh, an understanding of British common law and and really, the, that's a distilled version of uh, Christian, mostly Christian understandings, Christian morality applied to the state, applied to the uh, common life. And 
the the people who, uh, I mean, I don't have to go through it all with you. We've talked about this before, but the Bible being the most quoted book in the debates in the Constitutional Congress and so forth. So, yeah, it, it is Christian, but sure, could it have been more explicitly Christian? Could there have been more explicit references to Jesus Christ? Sure, there could have been. And I, I would say there could even be improvements to the Constitution. I'm not one of these people who thinks it's a sacred document at all. But it is a Christian it does come from a Christian understanding. There's no doubt about this. Saudi Arabia would not have produced it, okay? Uh, China would not have produced it. It had to have been not just a Christian country, but a Protestant majority Christian country that produced the Constitution that we've been living under that has, is now in tatters, unfortunately. So um, once you start making distinctions between local municipalities, state, uh, and, and then the common government, and their different levels of responsibility they have, this stuff becomes a lot more clear, I think. But if you're only looking at the national constitution and its wording in a way that doesn't have explicitly Christian language, it doesn't reference Jesus Christ, well, you're just you're using the wrong measurement, if that's the case. You're not looking at um, all the relevant facts in order to make an assessment as to whether the United States is a Christian country or not, or its laws are affected by Christianity. And I'm not as knowledgeable about places like Turkey, but I will say, because I've been to Turkey, that it's a huge difference from going to Istanbul and going to, like we were in Izmir. And in Izmir and in, um, uh, like we went to Ephesus, the ancient city there, and that surrounding area is much more dominated by Islam as far as uh, the, there's less uh influence from global corporations and people traveling and so forth. But even in Istanbul, though, there's still a call to prayer. There's still Muslim influence for sure. So it's just, it's a matter of degrees. Uh, let's keep reading though here. I don't want to, we got so much to go over and I'm being long-winded like I usually uh, can be. An established religion is one that enjoys the patronage of the state, its doctrine and practices uh, receive the endorsement of the state, its clergy and members receive certain advantages from the state, if in no other way than the fact that the tax dollars function simultaneously as the offering plate dollars. Okay, in some places, it's still like that. In fact, anything in Germany right now, I think it's still like that. Um, I believe Lutheranism is funded uh, primarily in German, German official Lutheranism is funded through the state uh, mechanisms. But um, you do, you're looking to Europe here and you're saying, well, like a, a European established church, like from the medieval times, and some of that still exists, that's what it means to have an established religion or something. And the thing is, if, if you in historical context, when you read our Bill of Rights and it says Congress shall not, um, Congress is not supposed to establish a religion. What they're talking about is, you have to read it in historical context, is a state church in the sense of, uh, in, in the same vein as what England had, where you have an official state denomination and Anglicanism is the official religion of the United Kingdom. Just recently, Prince Charles had to even make a statement uh, of, um, I, I don't remember the term they used, but essentially it was a, a a statement of allowance for the Church of Scotland to exist and function. And it, it seems so archaic, but that's the way that it was in Great Britain. In America, though, it's it's been different since... Well, really, since the founding of the United States, since since the uh, colonization of the United States, some areas were more, like the Puritan areas were, were more strict in some ways, like Anglican areas were more strict at first. 
But the United States um, has always had a, a larger diversity of people coming from different areas in Great Britain and even some in other parts of Western Europe. And so it's been a general Protestantism mostly in some areas like Maryland, there's some Catholicism, but it's been a general Christianity that has held sway at a common level. So it's still uh, Christian. It's, it's just not, it's not the officially funding through tax dollars on a national level, a state church, but states did that. So I don't know. It's just, um, you know, what's the official religion now? I wouldn't want to know from Jonathan Lehman. What do we pay our tax dollars to now uh, when they go to educating our children? And, and unfortunately, in some cases, drag queen story hours and so forth. I mean, what religion is that? Because obviously there's going to be an established religion of some kind in the sense that there's going to be a religion that holds sway, a religious, a set of ethical I, more precepts that will guide the laws and the social customs of the people of the, of the land. That's inescapable, right? So I don't think what he's bringing up here is particularly interesting. Of course, we're not Europe, and no one's arguing where we are Europe, and no one's arguing we ought to be Europe. Uh, I've read this whole book. You know, I read most of Andrew Torba's book on it. Those are the two big books right now. This one's even bigger on Christian nationalism, and nowhere are they arguing for what Jonathan Lehman is describing here. This whatever this European styled uh, tax money's being given to an official denomination of some kind. So. It, it, it strikes me as almost a, like a straw man being set up here. He says, this brings me back to the problem with the label Christian nationalism or even the more common phrase Christian nation. And it's this, the service performed by the adjective Christian is to identify. It's declaring an identity. Christians might say they only mean for, for Christianity to influence a nation, not identify it, but you call it a Christian nation. You can't get away from the identity. This is why similar debates occur in Turkey and India and over the Muslim and Hindu labels. People do not want that identity. Okay, well, I don't know. What identity do we have now? We're secular humanists on some level. We're pagans, really. We're, we're returning to paganism. So that's what people want is, is really irrelevant to what ought to be, right? What ought to be is we ought to honor Jesus Christ. And I am for, if, if it were possible, I don't think we're going back, but I would be for, if it were possible, a return to a scenario that was similar to what we had at the inception of this country, where you had, uh, you could have a, a state church in certain regions, or, and, and this would be my personal preference, I think, probably because of the way I was raised and so forth, but, or a general Christianity holding sway, which is what, by the way, Stephen Wolf argues for in this book. <laughs> so Jonathan Lehman, I don't even know what he's, you know, what are you talking about, man? What are you worried about? What's the scary thing? Why is this so scary? When the biggest advocates of this position, uh, if you actually read them, they're, what they're saying is they want a general Christianity to hold sway. Not, it's not going to be tax money is going to a particular denomination by force or something. Okay, so um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. Um, he says, uh, we don't believe in a Muslimized Christianity, which ties Christ's name to a geopolitical space and people. Uh, that will only make the public debate worse because defensiveness on one side always yields more defensiveness on the other side. So his uh, concern here seems to be, we're going to be ripped apart. This is going to be, this is going to tear us asunder, this debate over Christian nationalism, which is very similar to actually what Christianity Today put out. And I'll show you that article soon. 
he says, don't be fooled by the argument that refraining from establishing Christianity is adopting public atheism or a feigned neutrality. Refraining is recognizing a jurisdictional limit, a job description. A senator's job isn't to tell us who to worship, but to protect life. This, this is, these are just simplistic, just, I don't, I dare I say ignorant uh, assumptions and conflations he's making here. Obviously, the, the, the most, if you want to say radical, the most radical advocate for Christian nationalism would recognize a difference between a senator and and a pastor, um, it's it, and how the how how God's laws apply in each case, and what laws of God apply in each um, channel in, in each jurisdiction. Uh, okay, so he says this um, to anyone wondering whether an established church might help us out of our present moral chaos. Establishing religion can sometimes succeed in securing external moral behavior in the short term. Look at Muslim nations, for example. Yet it does a lousy job of producing truly moral behavior over the long term. Okay, so no one's arguing this. Look, and, and you could say, by the way, Stephen Wolf makes this point. You could say, because this is the argument that, well, it's going to produce hypocrites. If Let's say you made an argument that uh, you weren't allowed to blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that was an argument that would have been known to our founders. It was Washington's army had rules against blasphemy. So you, you have this, this law, right? And someone, let's say... Um, decides they're not going to blaspheme because they're afraid of the law. They don't want to accept the consequence, the fine or whatever. And so they don't blaspheme. And But in their heart, they're still blaspheming. They just don't say it. Okay. Is that producing a hypocrite? Well, you might say yes. I mean, that person's not being honest about who they really are. In fact, maybe they're fitting in and you think they're a legitimate Christian and they're not. But could you not say the same thing about a law against murder or, or any other, uh, you know, I don't know, stealing or something, couldn't you say, well, that person is not stealing because they're afraid of the law that will come down upon them and the consequence. So therefore, we've made a hypocrite. That person's still coveting in their heart. They're a thief down deep inside, but they're just not doing it. So we produced a hypocrite. Well, good, right? Isn't that what we want the state to do? So so this argument's kind of irrelevant because if it would just destroy all laws in a sense if you applied this consistently. He says, when you ask the state to undertake the role of the church by rendering judgment on right doctrine, you you subtly undermine new covenant Holy Spirit birth Christianity. Okay, well, aren't there certain things, though, that the state is responsible for adjudicating that the, the church is not? Uh, in fact, uh, there are moral laws that the church is not supposed to be punishing, except maybe on a spiritual level, that the state should be punishing on a in a temporal, physical level. So, uh, if the examples I just gave that are very basic, murder and adultery or, or um, uh, stealing, uh, don't you want the, the state rendering a judgment on this? That is, in a sense, a doctrinal issue. It traces back, at least, to the character and nature of God, right? That's doctrine. We're in doctrine now. So, And I understand there's a difference. So, so you have a difference between the ecclesia and the magisterium. But he's not, that those are, <laughs> he's not making the proper distinctions on their responsibilities here. What he's doing is he's he's making a an all or nothing argument that uh, that the church is the sole arbiter of God's law, and uh, they're the sole definers of uh, and and those who would have an, a vested interest in uh, communicating and applying God's law, and and so he's taking that completely out of the hands of the state. What this would leave is a secular state 
in essence. I, I, whatever else he says in this article, that's what you would have to, to get to eventually. Okay, um, so he's really against the state presenting itself as Christian. Uh, let's see. It's also, he says, missiologically careless. I mean, these are pretty, these are pretty uh, stiff charges. Churches who care about evangelism should care about this political theology conversation. Consider how much God cares about who is identified with his name. So, so this is the guilt by association. We don't want a, a government that's bad to be identified as Christian. And I would say, how many churches out there, maybe even ones in the Nine Marks Network, how many websites that I talk about on this podcast call themselves Christian churches and websites and they're absolute hypocrites? Do we just say, well, I guess we sh churches shouldn't use the label Christian. We shouldn't say it's a Christian church because there's hypocrites there. What a ridiculous thing to say. But apparently that works when it comes to a nation. It makes no sense. Just because there's hypocrites exist or because there's an association uh, doesn't mean we don't use the... Uh, label in a proper sense. We, we can apply it properly. Uh, this new Israel, this new nation turns out to be Jesus and everyone who uh, covenantally united uh, to him. They're the ones, so he's saying the church, um, he means to gather in his name. So, so the church is Christian, but the state can't be. That's what he's trying to say. The language of Christian nationalism or Christian nation then unaccountably slaps Jesus' name into a modern nation state. <laughs> I mean, how many parrot churches are called Christian? How many uh, families call themselves Christian families? How many um, uh, ministries, uh, just uh, movies are Christian movies, Christian radio stations? How many things are called Christian that also are an affront to the name of Christ? It doesn't mean you just stay away from the label Christian. Uh, and, and the idea that, you know, because the church is the new Israel, there's an element of continuity between the church and Israel doesn't mean that we just ignore all the laws that were given to Israel as a light to the nations. These are principles we can apply. We're supposed to. We'd be foolish if we didn't. doesn't mean they all apply. In the, I actually agree with Stephen Wolf's uh, take on theonomy in the book, and you'll have to read it because he's not, he doesn't use the label um, he has some of the critiques that I think I would have, but in general, he's saying, yeah, generally speaking, we should apply, if you what, if what you mean by theonomy is we apply God's law, the principles of God's law uh, into different contexts, then count me in. And that's what, how I feel about it. Count me in then. So the, the, the state still has a responsibility to administer the sword and that sword is going to be swinging somewhere. So who do we want informing that sword? Uh, the diaconos of God, the servant of God, or the servant of the devil? That's the question. Um, so much of this stuff is just insultingly uh, basic and just, it, it's it's kind of drivel. It's just not, it doesn't move the conversation forward. It's just a, a package of uh, kind of bumper sticker sentiments that are, um, trying the whole point is to uh, besmirch those who would advocate for a, a Christian nationalism that wants to recognize Christianity in some way as an identifying mark, an identifying uh, element uh, for the nation. So I'd be curious for Jonathan Lehman, what what is a nation? I'd be curious, what's the definition of a nation? What are the things that unite a people? Then, like, give me some of them, because I'm sure he's not he's not going to say it's ethnicity or race or any of that, right? And it's, if it's not religion, 
if it's so what is it then exactly that i'd be just curious what is it is it the proposition nation well we all just believe in freedom or something like that that is proving to not work at all to keep a, a people together and it's not worked in the areas we've tried to apply it foreign in foreign places um what what is a nation okay so uh <laughs> don't make peter's mistake he says don't pick up the sword in the garden of gethsemane the sword has good God-given work to do provi uh, to provide a platform for the church to stand on, safe roads so that we can drive to church. <laughs> but we're not going to advance the kingdom through the sword. Okay, no one says though that we're going to do that. That's not see, see. It's arguing against something that doesn't. That's not out there. Who's saying we advance the kingdom of God through the sword? What the sword can do is make it so that the uh, the public good is defended and upheld and public worship is possible and encouraged uh, force can only do that the force can't 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 we there is a freedom of conscience and and wolf talks about that in his book okay uh i don't think there's much more to say on this particular uh topic this is it's it's a piece that really doesn't merit critical engagement because it's not saying anything that hasn't been said. It's not unique. It's just, it's just kind of bland sentiments that I think most people, unfortunately, who are, have been impacted by elitism, elite Christianity are going to have, but they're not, there are mostly straw men. They're arguing against things that people aren't saying and they're making assumptions that aren't reasonable. And it's, it's, in fact, if you look at this, there's some Bible verses he quotes, but he's not he can't reach back to in history, really, to uh, for support for what he's trying to say because it's not a historically based argument. It's it's a very modern uh, sentiment that he has. So that's Jonathan Lehman and what he's been saying. Uh, <laughs> some of your comments are funny, but who would build the roads? Yeah, who would build the roads? Um. Wow, you got you know what? Some of these I'm just looking at the comments that are coming in. Is it's it's interesting. Some of you who are just talking about how yeah you're hearing this from the pulpit, this kind of thing. What Jonathan Lehman's talking about here. Uh, one one person says uh, talks about theocracy. The problem with my generation is that we didn't see God as the ruler of the universe. And yeah, I mean, there's an aversion to theocracy for sure. And I don't think he uses that word in this. I don't know. Maybe he does, but. Well, in fact, we can we can find out, can't we? Does he use the word theocracy? No, he doesn't. All that the people who are arguing for Christian nationalism, though, are saying is that we ought to have a society based upon Christian laws that seeks that the glue that, and this is where the identification comes in, the glue that holds us together in some part is Christianity and the laws and the customs that come from that, that those should be the standard for our interactions with one another. You have to have a standard. That's the thing. So they're not saying, I mean, I mean there's there's more to it, but the, if you really peel all the onion layers back, that's what you're going to get back to. Well, let's move on to just some other uh, critiques that are just floating around out there. People have sent me. Paul Miller. I started reading his book, and boy, is it not as well-written as uh, Stephen Wolf's or well-researched, I should say. But this is what he says. The National Conser uh, Conservatism website is prominently featuring the case for Christian nationalism on its homepage, 
So I guess it's fair game to associate that book's argument with the national conservatism movement more broadly. Now, why would he say this? Well, he, the reason he's saying this is because he's trying to put Stephen Wolf's book, he's trying to make it a ring around the neck of uh, secular conservatives, uh, of people who are not necessarily Christians, uh, who have more mainstream support and clout. And what he's trying to say is that, like, look what you guys are doing. You know, you're you're accepting the fringe here. Uh, let's discredit national conservatism by uh, showing that Stephen Wolf is associated with them somehow. And good for them for carrying the book, by the way. Just amazing. I mean, you can have Yoram Hazoni writing a book on nationalism. You can have him wanting a uh, a nationalistic state in Israel where it's Judaism and it's uh, you know all the no one blinks an eye when someone talks about it when it's in Israel. Uh, we want Judaism to be uh, you know the national religion. We want uh, we want Jewish people to be here, and it's for a home for Jewish people, and the, the customs should be Jewish and. Uh, we should secure our borders and make sure that they're defended. Like no one bats an eye, hardly at all, when you start talking about that. Unless you're, you know, there there's some people on the who think it doesn't belong to them or something. But in general, on the conservative quote unquote side, no one bats an eye. But when you start saying those th things about the United States, oh my goodness, like you can't do that. So yeah, good for them for not being scared of Stephen's book. Uh, here's another one. This was sent to me last night. Uh, Neil Shenvey. Uh, who, uh, for those who don't know, uh, is just, he's a guy on Twitter who, uh, I think he's writing a book on critical race theory right now, but he's been around for a few years and he's written for Gospel Coalition and um, he's been on like podcasts talking about critical race theory and stuff. And uh, in the past, I've kind of critiqued his, I, I've said good things about some of the things he's done. I've also said, I've also critiqued him though um, and how he goes about it. Because oftentimes I, I think what he does is he can, in the abstract, go after CRT, but then in the concrete, he ends up defending people who are bringing it in to the Southern Baptist Convention. But um, what he says here, though, is interesting to me because Neil tends to be known as someone, or at least I think he fancies himself as, as someone who puts in a great deal of time studying primary sources when it comes to CRT, understanding what CRT is, explaining it. And you'd think he would do the same thing when it comes to Christian nationalism. But here's what he says. He says, Christian nationalism is often nebulously defined. But evangelicals who identify with the label need to say clearly how they feel about interracial marriage. That's the first one. So prove you're not a racist. If you're going to use that term, you better prove you're not a racist. Uh, whether a Christian na national identity requires a white national identity. What freedom of religion would look like in a Christian nation. Whether, how, and which Christian traditions would be privileged by the state and whether and how Christian nationalism will be achieved through democratic means. These questions are important, both practically and theologically. And I would just like to suggest to those who are saying things like this, there is a book that's <laughs> like the number one bestseller on it out there right now. Um, and, and a lot of these things are addressed. But this is the, I would say, the default setting coming from the left, though. The, the questions that he's asking here are the kinds of questions that are coming from the left about this, that the, the fears of the left or the, what they want you to think, what they want to smear Christian nationalism as is this horrible, xenophobic, sexist, misogynistic, racist, uh, now they're you know saying kinist, whatever, all these horrible things. It's like Adorno's F scale. It's, 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 uh, you're a Nazi if, you're, if you believe in this. And, and so 
uh, the, the challenge then becomes if you use the term, you you better you know show you you better like distance yourself from all these other fringy things. Where there is, I would rather say, I, I would rather uh, assume a benefit of the doubt upon Christian nationalism. And and I've I've had my critiques of it. I if you've watched this podcast, I still am critical. I don't even know if I don't. I'm not using the term of myself, but the I can recognize what where the movement is going, and that there's some good things happening here. Uh, I'm just I, I just know that historically, uh, it's the, the term has been used by people who didn't believe what the current crop of people using the term say they believe, and so that's a hang up I have. But if you're going to use the term, that's fine. I'm not. But but I would I give you the benefit of the doubt. I assume that. There's actually writings on this. There's people who are advocating for it. Uh, their leaders. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do the authorial intent thing. And what do they say about it? What do they say about this? And and seek to understand it. And then those who smear, I would say they need to prove their point. They need to make the case. So the onus isn't on me. If I'm a Christian nationalist, it's not on Stephen Wolf even. The onus isn't necessarily on him to prove you're not racist or whatever whatever hoop they want him to jump through. The onus is on them to show that this is such a horrible thing. Show me the primary sources and correctly, in context, um, interpret them. That's what's not being done. It's just cherry pick stuff. And so this is, I, I would just suggest to you, this is, uh, this is in the wrong direction. Let's let's turn it into the other direction. Let's put the, the pressure on the people who want to oppose this movement. Uh, and you know, what do you want? You want drag queen story hour? You're, you're a secularist. You know, you don't want Christianity to have uh, to be influential. You don't want uh, the United States to be known as Christian. You don't want your local community to be Christian. Like what? So so what do you want? You want anarchy? You want the laws of God to be disregarded? That's the that's where I think the burden of proof should be going, and. It's unfortunate to me that you, it's even the, the so-called conservatives. I told this to Steve and I said, look, it's everyone coming after you. It's, it's, uh, and, and this, make no mistake. I mean, you read this and, and maybe Neil says this isn't about Steve and I don't know, but it, in the context and every, it, with what's happening right now, it's very hard to believe this doesn't have something to do with Stephen's book. Cause this is, these are the things that are being said about Stephen. Uh, but I said to Steve and I said, look, everyone's after you. The only people who aren't are these paleocons who happen to be Christians. And a lot of them though are Zoomers. They're the younger generation that's conservative is starting to realize um, how terrible the assumptions they've lived under and how unworkable they are. That you, There isn't this neutral space where it's gonna, it, it, the option really is we, we either have drag queen story hour and sacrifices to Molech or we have Christianity. You, you can't, you know, this, this uh, gentleman's agreement where we have principal pluralism doesn't work. Uh, we have, uh, here's another one. This, I saw this. Someone send this to, again, these, I'm not looking for any of this. People send this to me. Uh, and this, surprisingly, this was retweeted by, I saw who retweeted, Michael, Michael O'Fallon retweeted this. Um, the president, I think, is it president, director, what, leader, founder uh, of Sovereign Nations, which Sovereign Nations, like, see, that would be a term I would get behind. Sovereign Nations. In fact, many of the articles there, I would get behind. I think they, there's even an article recently I saw that they put out. Um, but this is something he retweeted in, in, in a positive way. And this is uh, from a guy named Doc Sandlin, um, who I, uh, I've been told is a theonomist. But he says this, globally bloodwashed Christianity trumps any nation, each of which should embrace universal biblical law. 
the white Christian uh, billionaire male has more in common with the poorest Christian sub-Saharan female than he does any of his unconverted countrymen. Christianity is an anti-secular globalist, pro-godly globalist faith destined for nothing less than worldwide domination. And maybe this is very post-millennial and theonomic in, in some circles, but I'm sorry, globalists? No. Um, God invented nations. Nations are a good thing. And yeah, there's universal, uh, there is a, a biblical law with moral principles that are universal, but they're going to look different in different places, how they're applied. And it, it, Stephen actually has a great section in his book on this very topic. Uh, and, and I think it's one of the critiques I have of some theonomists is that, it, you know, there isn't a one size fits all like law that applies everywhere that you're going to get from uh, the Old Testament. You're going to have to exercise some prudence based upon the unique challenges and cultures that you're dealing with. Uh, and it's going to look different. In fact, forms of government are going to look different in different places. To, to say that we're, we, it'll be good to have a one size fits all globalist Christian government or something that trumps all the nations that's a no <laughs> no that wouldn't be good in fact i think the united states here here's where i'm going to be i guess radical by in some standards the united states is too big for that we're too big for that we have to have we have different needs an agrarian area is going to be very different than an urban area and by the way different urban areas are going to be different than one another in how biblical law is applied uh, and a lot of what we operate on has to be uh, taken from tradition. I pointed this out not long ago that why is it 18 when you vote? Is that a biblical thing? No, there's a biblical principle there of maturity, but it's a tradition that we have. So there is prudence. There is tradition that, that helps us wisely navigate these things. And it's going to look different for different uh, places. And a farm community, you have people growing up, they're driving the truck when they're 13. You, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, your 12-year-old is driving the pickup truck on your farm. He's perfectly capable. And the challenges that exist uh, driving in an open field are not the same that exist driving in an urban environment. So guess what? Laws are going to be different. So and that, that, that applies to a number of other uh, areas as well. But it's just this sentiment exists out there. And it's nothing, no, I'm not casting any aspersions on uh, this gentleman or and I'm not against him. I'm not, um, we probably agree on a great many things, but... Uh, there's a, what I want you to see, and, and you know, I, it's not like I need to go over these things. It's probably causing me more trouble than it's worth to some extent. Sometimes I wonder that, you know, if I, if I mention someone or an organization that people could be defensive about it, it, I'm not trying to attack. What I'm trying to point out to you is there is a schism right now. And the Christian nationalist debate is, is showing this schism and it's going to get wider and wider and just have to be prepared for it, which is why I recommend reading Stephen's book on the subject, you'll be prepared for it. Because there are people who are both on the conservative side, but they think very differently. And the, the people who are pro-globalist or uh, they, they think that, you know, that nations are ab abstractions or something that are based upon abstractions or they're gonna be more in line with the, the leftists on these points. Uh, and it's it's gonna cause problems and it already is causing problems, I think in our movement, but I think it's healthy because this stuff has been under the surface for a while and it's coming out now. We need to have this debate and it's a worthwhile debate to have. And, and people can tell which I'm not on, I'm not on Doc Sandlin's side of this particular debate. We may agree on a great many things. This is not one of them. I do think God created nations and wants them administered 
not not in a globalist uh, framework and until Christ comes when Christ comes and he rules the world uh, when we're talking about uh, the the eternal realm you know that's is why I'm a, a Protestant two kingdoms guy uh, not a radical two kingdoms guy Protestant two kingdoms guy because the only thing that makes sense of this in fact I think it would help us navigate even Jonathan Lehman's hang-ups when it, when you apply that and, and that's what uh, Stephen also believes that as well uh, so, um, what else here? Oh, here was vote. Maybe, a, okay, I'm gonna have to hold off on this because now people are making me think that I read this wrong. I was going to play a quote from Bodie Bauckham about scary Christian nationalism. And I thought he was being sarcastic here. And, uh, maybe now people are making me think that he was, he really is against Christian nationalism <laughs> or something. So maybe I'll email Bodie and ask him about that. But, uh, I do have to say though, I won't play the clip, but I, I have to say listening to the clip, my first thought was Bodie needs to do some really like, you know, those like, uh, you know, go to sleep apps where it's like soothing voice and they're describing the ocean coming in and out and you go to sleep. Bodie needs to do that because he has such a soothing voice. <laughs> I wish I had his voice sometimes. Um, but, uh, but I'm going to look into it more. Uh, and, and, uh, so, so now people are, <laughs> no, 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 that's, <laughs> he's not against it. He agreed it was fringe. That's all. Okay, I'm gonna have to look into it. I don't know what Vody thinks on it. I thought he was kind of uh, defending it to some extent, defending Christian nationalism. Um, okay, let's see. Oh, last but not least, uh, let's go to this article. This is from Christianity Today. Christian nationalism debates expose clashing views of power, says the journalist Daniel Silliman. Caleb Campbell didn't know he needed the term Christian nationalism. He heard it here and there, but it hadn't really registered. It was at the edge of his awareness and his vocabulary as he tried to understand the disputes over racism, the pandemic, and the election that rocked his evangelical church. Then the new year started. A mock gallows was erected at the Capitol and his social media. You, you know, I was there on January 6th. I didn't see this mock gallows. This, this whole thing, like... The, the people on January 6th committee think everyone saw the gallows and was for it. I don't even know what they were talking about. Like, what, what, oh, there's, okay. So that was in a different section. Anyway, that, that affected him though. The mock gallows erected at the Capitol and his social media showed some of the mob carried signs that said Jesus saves. His mind strained to make sense of the two things together. And you remember from somewhere there was a term, Christian nationalism. I needed that phrase to name it, said Campbell, pastor of Desert Springs Bible Church. This is a heresy. It's a complete distortion of Jesus' doctrine of power. I think Christian nationalism started in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was reaching for the cross and Peter, who loves Jesus, thought he should protect him with a sword. Okay, so you've never read actual people who say that they're Christian nationalists. That should be where you start. It really should. Don't, so so let's, let's go by all the media pejoratives. How about you start with the people who say they're Christian nationalists? Proudly display it. What do they say it is? It's what people aren't doing. All right. As the political campaigns ahead of the midterm election have heated up, so has the debate about the new political phrase. For evangelicals, the 2022 election has become in part a contest over what Christian nationalism is, whether just a slur used against conservative Christians voting their values or something new and malevolent. So you, you notice how this is all framed. This is what Jonathan Lehman did. It's what, uh, to some extent, Neil Shenby was doing. It's it's not even, they're not coming out and saying, well, some of them are, but they're not saying, this is a sin, stand against Christian. It's more just the casting shade on it. It's it's the um, introducing the suspicion into your mind. You should be suspicious of this. 
And so, so, so your mind is, is asking those questions instead of asking questions about, which would be helpful, hmm, how do we, as the United States, uh, manage to avoid the iceberg that we're hung up on right now uh, over sexual anarchy and a weakening military and less the, the masculinity going out the door and our leadership crisis and our financial crisis and our debt and how, like, see, these are the, that's the question you should be asking. What uh, pl plan or what framework helps us get out of this? How can the law of God help us? Instead, you're asking questions about, are they Nazis? Are they nefarious? Some Republican candidates are claiming the name and the best-selling Amazon uh, book on Amazon, probably, is it? Yep, it's it's the, no, it's not. Christian Nationalism, Biblical Dominion, Discipling. Wait, let's see. Let's see what the best-selling book on Amazon is. Oh, it's Torba's book, okay. Andrew Torba's book. Uh, that all real Christians are Christian nationalists and a growing number of professional and amateur political commentators are using it to explain American politics. I would say there are nine different definitions from people I've talked to. A Pew Research Center poll released last week confirms that the term is slippery. Not everyone is using it the same way. And, and I would agree to some extent. There, there's a range here, but here's the thing. Do you assume if there's a range, let's say, let's say there's nine people that Christian nationalism is a good thing and one person who's a Nazi. And then you say, well, does the term, like, let's let the Nazi define it. No, you don't do that. <laughs> you, you go to, who has the traction? And I think that's a good metric to use. What's the best selling books on this? Uh, from people who actually advocate it. Pew found that 45% of Americans think that the U.S. should be a Christian nation. This includes 81% of self-identified white evangelicals. The same percentage that voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Let's skip ahead here. The broader uh, version that Pew calls Christian nationalists is embraced by 65% of black Protestants, more than a half of white non-evangelical Protestants, and about a third of Hispanic Catholics. Uh, the, the Let's see, the, the idea is broad. They quote Samuel Perry. Uh, and of course, they, they always go to their experts. These are the, and John Fee, another one of, you know, these are people that are against it, but they're not against Christian nationalism. So like, this isn't a new thing. They've been against the religious right for years. John Fee has been against the religious right forever. He's been, so you're, you're going to people who have an ax to grind. Christian nationalism, however, appeals to that often accepted narrative of the found, uh, founding to legitimize its political goals. It always uses the past to advance a right-wing agenda. I see Christian nationalism as a contemporary political movement, but it is always, all caps, draws upon the view that the founders created a Christian nation. And we must, like, here's the thing, the, the founders didn't create a Christian nation. It, it wasn't something they had to create. They inherited Christian, and, and I think accurately, Christian nations, a Christian country, okay? They inherited that. They wouldn't have, they didn't, we weren't self-consciously, oh, well, we can do anything we want. Let's create a Christian nation. For evangelical pastors who reject Christian nationalism, though, the debate is not really about history. They remember people arguing about the founding as far back as the 1980s. Uh, it talks about Mark Knoll, George Marston, and Nathan Hashed clash with Francis Schaeffer. And I've read that book. It's not good. Uh, what, was, what was the name of that book? I, um, I don't remember. Uh, and people were still arguing about it in 2010s when Grove City College professor Warren Throckmorton and Michael Coulter pointed out that many factual errors in popular historian David Barton's book on Thomas Jefferson. Funny that that's brilliant. If someone asked me at the beginning of this about David Barton, now, now he comes up again. 
Christian nationalism seems like the next step in an evolution. Now, here's the thing. This is why I'll defend a certain aspect. Uh, I, I Like I said, I don't think David Barton's research is always there, but I have a sympathy because there are so many people afraid to do what he's doing. And it, this is what I see all over the place is the elites and the academics are leaving it to the common people, people who are least uh, or less um, able to front a good, solid argument sometimes and they're letting them do the heavy lifting, and it, it drives me nuts. It's one of the reasons I, I'm very satisfied with going, you know, getting a master's in history, getting a, an MDiv, and then just saying, you know what, academy, so long. And it's it's not like an axe to grind I have with the academy. I'm just like, I want the freedom to be able to uh, represent some of these views you're not allowed to say. That so many people on the Christian side in the academy, it's not like everyone, but there are people who whisper these things. They they agree, but they they have to root in silence. I get the email sometimes. And uh, that's why I have some compassion for a David Barton. Like his sentiments are in the right place as far as America's Christian and I like it and should def- I want to defend it. Like that, that, that's, and that's enough to get you canceled. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead here because this is, uh, this is kind of lengthy. All right. I think we should be involved in politics, but there's the way of the cross and the way of the sword. We're supposed to be across people. Yeah, of course. And that's the note they leave the article on. So if you're, you're for Christian nationalism, you're not across people. That's the, They want to insert this skepticism into your mind. And I would just say, don't buy it anymore. It's it's past time uh, to ignore these people. And uh, so my purpose in bringing these uh, people up is not to platform them. It, it's just to, it's to inform you about the debate that's happening. But... It's also just to answer them to some extent and say, look, you need to hear someone else saying what you're thinking. Many of you, these people don't know what they're talking about. They really don't. They haven't, they're, they're not actually interacting with the primary sources. They don't know what Stephen Wolf wrote about. They barely know what Andrew Torber wrote about many of them. And they're, they're going against a boogeyman. And, uh, and in many cases they're straw manning things and they're creating dilemmas, false dilemmas. That's either the way of the cross or it's the way of the way of the sword or the way of the cross. It, it can't be both. You can't have a Bible that is very positive about David's mighty men because of how many Philistines they killed. And at the same time, tells you to love your neighbor. These two things are not in conflict, but they're, people want to make a conflict there. They want to, they, and I think what a lot of it is, is they want to be probably, this is my analysis at least, Totally my bias coming out here, but they want to be acceptable to regime elites. They want to be um, known as those who took a stand against Christian nationalism. They don't want to be known as the bigots. And so they have to make some kind of a separation to explain how they're different than the Christian nationalists. And at the same time, they have to somehow try to keep their base of Christians. If they're in Christianity Today or Nine Marks or these other places, they have to keep their Christian base. Say, look, I'm a Christian. I'm 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 just against this Christian nationalism stuff. That's I think probably what's going on. It's probably more about them than it is about actually trying to define uh, what this term is and have a productive discussion. Because all these things do is they muddy the waters. So. Uh, what I, I liked about Stephen's book was it was clarifying. And so let me give you, if I can, uh, his uh, definition of Christian nationalism. Here it is. Christian nationalism is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs, 
conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation, in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. That's the definition of the most popular book on the subject. So there you go. And he spends the rest of the book elaborating on this. Uh, <clears throat> let's just go through questions if there's questions out there. And then uh, we will uh, wrap it up. There are a lot of comments today. We've got 91 streamers right now. <laughs> Under Christian nationalism, legalism and lukewarmness would be exposed on a large scale. <laughs> yeah, some people's, it might actually, some people's lukewarmness might. Uh, this is the aversion that though people had to cultural Christianity before Christian nationalism was a popular term. You, you would see like gospel coalition types saying cultural Christianity was terrible. Russell Moore wrote this hard, whole article against it. And they say because it made hypocrites. It was it was terrible. And I'm like, yeah, but I think growing up in a secular area in New York, I had appreciation for cultural Christianity. I go down to Mississippi uh, every year to visit family, and I knew that there was a difference. Even though many of my family members probably weren't born again believers, there was a respect they had, and the people around them had a respect for Jesus, for Christianity, for church, for the position of a pastor. That was a positive thing. That, I mean, we should rejoice even when uh, pagans or people who are not Christians uphold a Christian moral standard because it's to their judgment and it also upholds it for those whose consciences will be convicted by that standard to come to Christ. If you don't have people convicted by a moral standard, then they don't, why come to Christ? So it's good to have a moral standard, even if it means there's hypocrites. A state church didn't work out back then on the state level. In New England, last uh, last states to have a state church, you saw a rise in people hostile to the faith. States that got rid of it saw a rise in church attendance. Once New England got rid of the state church, attendance greatly rose. I'd be curious to see studies on that. My understanding with New England is that actually um, you had overnight, the congregational churches went Unitarian in like a 10-year, 15-year period in the federal period. And so it was it was actually great apostasy that challenged the uh, church there uh, more than anything else. And I, I think that when you're talking about the Puritans, you're also, they're, they're a little bit of a different animal in some ways as far as um, when we're talking about American history in the way that often they viewed their responsibility uh, to, in society as uh, creating this city on a hill. Um, there was a perfectionism that I think actually hampered their movement uh, early on because as, uh, while they were Calvinist in their soteriology, they unfortunately had this emphasis on human effort that ended up, I think, honestly driving some of them nuts. There's an essay by Richard Weaver I always give, I always tell people to read, uh, called Two Diarists. And it's, uh, com- it's a cot- Cotton Mather is contrasted with William Byrd of Virginia. William Byrd sins uh, quite a bit, but he, he talks about how basically Cotton Mather is obsessed with doing something for God to the to the extent that he just doesn't enjoy life. He's just, he's a miserable guy in some ways and very pious, but like just, he can never achieve the standard that he's made out for himself because it's perfection. And I think that hampered the Puritans quite a bit. And, and so I, when we are comparing regions in the United States and how the church did um, better or worse, I think we have to take into account a number of factors, that being one of them, that that perfectionism, Definitely, I think, uh, hampered the church's efforts. It, um, it was an unattainable standard. Um, 
I think the acceptance of rationalism, higher criticism in New England really also contributed. And it wasn't because they were more academic. There were actually more colleges before the Civil War, right before the, on the eve of the Civil War, there were, I think, uh, by, by one or two, there were more colleges in the South than the North, even though there was more population in the North. But, uh, but of course, some of the oldest, most prestigious colleges, uh, like Harvard and the Ivy Leagues were in the North, but the, um, the, the flavor there, the sentiment was one of skepticism. And, um, there was a, uh, just a, too much of a trust in man's wisdom and intuition. And, uh, they accepted higher criticism from Europe and it ruined the uh, places that actually trained pastors, the seminaries. And um, there's a lot more that could be said, but uh, I think that a folk religion developed more on the frontier and the frontier was not New England. It was more mid-Atlantic and Southern states. And so um, that's why I think in the Midwest and in the South, uh, you have more, especially as you go farther West, uh, there, there was more of a Baptist and a Methodist influence uh, in those regions. And it was more of a, an emphasis on faith and what Christ has done, and, and it's a very simple faith. And um, and by that time, yes, there there weren't uh, you didn't have the state uh, churches the as strict as they were, of course, in Massachusetts at all. It doesn't mean though that the states were not even in the federal period affected by or influenced by or uh, based upon Christian precepts, and that the people of the states would have said they were Christians. And so it was it was looser. I'll grant that, and I'm more in favor of a looser. Uh, more more tolerant kind of interdenominational uh, Christianity in a sense uh, when it comes to civic life, social life uh, that 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 being the uh, standard, a common standard by which we operate. Uh, and, and maybe I'm wrong on that, but that's that's more where where I'm at. Um, I you know when you when you make it so strict that you uh, if you go outside of your particular denomination, then you're a heretic and you you're subject to civil penalties of some kind, then uh, I, I think it probably does create problems. But but the debate that's happening right now, though, isn't so much about a state church. It is about whether or not Christianity ought to be, just even mere bland <laughs> Christianity, ought to be uh, an identifying um, rallying point and a, a basis upon which we build our customs and laws. So, but good point. I mean, you so so many of you guys in this uh, particular audience are so smart, and I appreciate you so much. Um, let's see here. Some of, some of the questions I don't uh, completely understand, and so I'm going to skip over them. But they look very very uh, brilliant. Um, okay. Yeah. Can you give a brief summary of the case for Christian nationalism by Stephen Wolf? Well, that's the point of the next few uh, installments of the podcast. So I'm going to let him speak to it in his own terms. But the next three podcasts are going to be Stephen Wolf talking about his book. So you can look forward to that. Um, it's a long. It's like almost 500 pages. There's no way I'm going to give a summary in uh, in, in 30 seconds. Um. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, pe- people have lost in some of these places in which there's still quote unquote state religions like Great Britain. It's a joke, right? It's it's not obviously it. <laughs> it's just a uh, archaic formality that doesn't really have any actual bearing on the rest of society. Unfortunately, so 
if not Christian nationalism, what? Secular globalism? Richard uh, Contramundrum says. Uh, Christian globalism, pagan tribalism? Yes. Please play the Vody clip. Well, yeah, maybe next time. Uh, it's a short clip. All right. Well, God bless everyone. Uh, I appreciate all of you for uh, participating in the live chat today and all your support and on Patreon and other places. It does make a difference. God bless you all. I hope you're enjoying uh, your uh, little neck of the woods. And if the leaves are turning, I hope you're enjoying that. I love uh, when the leaves change in my neck of the woods. And I uh, hope you have a great weekend. More coming. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.